Hi, this is Ashley Farode, and you are listening to Behind the Bio, the podcast about the people behind the professions. In this episode, Frank Condy is my guest. Now, Frank is the man behind many iconic Canberra hospitality venues. Let's just name a few. Edgar's, Suburban, Public, Academy, Mr. Wolf, Shorty's, Lola's, Wakefield Room, The Inn, Mama Doe's, I'll stop there. You get the point. Over the last two decades or so, not that he likes to admit that part of it, he has been very instrumental in building up the foodie scene in Canberra and also the clubbing culture of Canberra as well. This has had a big impact on many of us, whether we've gone out just to have a drink, something to eat, or perhaps a dance at one of his venues. Now, Frank chats about heaps of things in this podcast, what he loves about the full hospitality experience, how he surrounds himself with good people and where he finds them. He offers advice to those who might be starting out in the industry and also gives a bit of an insight into what keeps him going every day, which essentially is that he gets bored pretty quickly and needs a challenge. I'd like to thank the Coordinate Group for making this episode and all the episodes in this podcast series possible, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Frank Condi. Hi Frank, how are you going? Good mate, how are you? <laughs> Good, thank you. I've just stopped you from taking a <laughs> sip of your coffee. <laughs> Sorry, you have the coffee and I'll explain that we're upstairs at the uh, Wakefield Room, which is upstairs from Edgar's and next to the inn and above Mama Doe's, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which actually is a nice way of summarizing the fact that you've built, I wouldn't call this an empire, but most certainly a creative space that has quite a few different elements to it in the heart of uh, Ainsley. Uh, but this isn't by any means your first, probably not even your last business either. And in fact, probably talks very much through the way that you build and develop things. But before we get into all of this, um, I've known you for yonks. My God, I, I would have met you. Did I meet you because of Academy? I think so. I think it's already started. Yeah. yeah. And and in fact, um, you know, I was a DJ, obviously, in Academy. So so for you. Um, then I started doing some design work as well for, for you for quite some time. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then I don't know if you know this, but because of Public, one of the venues that you still own, I believe. Yeah. Yep. Still there. So Public, I started DJing there and uh, you said, you know, I need a few DJs. And of course, I couldn't service both Public and some of your other venues at the same time. And I remember coming back from Christmas one day and pitching an idea to you saying, hey, maybe what I can do is kind of just grow my services a little bit and look after the music needs that you've got. That started off a business which I still run to this day in terms of all the creative and music consultancy. So it was actually you that gave me the first technical go at a client. Uh, the next one after that was uh, the guys at Hopscotch who just opened yeah, up yeah. and said, yeah. Ash, we understand you. You do this. We, we like your work. You know, would you be able to provide those kind of services? And that's how everything grew from there. And the rest of it's word of mouth. But so thank you. <laughs> but it, it goes to something that I want to talk about. Um, a lot of people know you. You're connected to a lot of people in Canberra. Mostly, I would say, from the hospitality side of things. But there's also a very big sporting side to you as well. Yeah. So maybe before we get into all of that, would you mind just telling me your kind of life section here? Were you born in Canberra? When did the sporting stuff start? Because that was quite a serious time in your life as well. So maybe could yep. you take us back to that a little bit? Okay. So, yeah, born in Canberra. Yeah. Uh, schooled in Canberra. Didn't really sort of, I played sport, did a lot of martial arts and, and basketball. That was my passion, martial right. arts and basketball all the way through school. Yeah. Um, and had a couple little dabbles in rugby. 
but didn't really enjoy it at that time. Um, under nines, it was my first student yep. football, and then not till year 10. Um, and then when I left school, I sort of had enough of martial arts and had enough of um, boxing and whatever else, and then um, and basketball was the end, so I... Um, I decided I'd give rugby a go. So I think that was 92. I sort of started playing a little bit of football and and then just loved it and then just sort of stuck with it and ended up going overseas and playing representative football early, sort of pre-professional and having that little dabble in sort of professional stuff um, and then came back from overseas and um, sort of started Working at Edgar's. Yeah. And then... Um, so we're talking... So you said you're 92, you went going overseas, is that right? No, 92, I started playing football. Okay, okay. I went so overseas in the year 2000. Yep. Came back, sort of 2001, bummed around with a few lounge bars and sort of just cruised around doing some odds and ends and didn't really know what I wanted to do. And then uh, my old boss had opened Edgar's originally and it yeah. was a bit of a... Just a little cheap little pub. Just a pub, right? Yeah, just, yeah. Just a yeah. rough little pub. It was pretty basic. There was no real suburban pubs anywhere at that time. And and so I started working here just as purely as a job. And then I thought, you know what, I need to get my hand into something. And I offered to buy it. And then um, it sort of took nine months for it to get across the line. And I bought it a year later. The whole rugby thing, right? So you did it for a, a serious amount of time. What was it about the playing of the rugby that made you go, actually, I, I don't want to be in professional sports all the way through? Because I know a lot of people who get very much into it drop out of it either due to injury or there is a time, you know, where essentially you just kind of switch out of it and perhaps go into coaching or what have you or even administration. What happened with you that you kind of went, I'm, I'm done with this and actually, you know, I'm going to hold on to this I other stuff? I think the playing side, I mean, I had a young family. That's I'd got married quite young and had some young kids and I thought I need to, you know, football's not really supporting me. It's more of a more of a passion. Um, and I needed to have some stability. So even though I, when I, I stopped playing, I tinkered and I started coaching and I started getting involved in the coaching side of it. So I, I ended up doing coaching for a number of years. But the stability was work. It was an income way to provide. So... Um, so then I just sort of dived into work and dived into this place. And, yep. And then um, a few things sort of went a little bit pear-shaped family-wise, so then I dived more into work um, and more into the, the coaching, and that was my sort of escape from work, really. Yep. Um, that was my little exit that I could switch off from work and switch off. And so I continued that for a few years, but work became a, a bit of a driving force for me because that was my that was my only thing I had to do. So, yeah, I just dived into it really but you must have really enjoyed it so the passion that you originally had for sport it sounds like you kind of channeled that into hospitality essentially ultimately yeah i mean i'm pretty competitive yeah and i like to prove people H- wrong. The sport. <laughs> yeah. i like to prove people wrong and a lot of people said i couldn't do things here and i couldn't do that and right. so i sort of dived into a, a few things i remember i said to a friend many years ago i want to have a you know four or five bars and they just laughed at me said you no chance and it sort of stuck with me for a while. I thought, oh, you know what? It's probably one of the little factors I, I can prove people wrong. And that's well, the competitive why, why, why would someone say that that wasn't possible? What do they mean? Financially, you wouldn't be able to scale it up? Um, there wasn't a the d- demand for it? Why were people doubting your ability? Because now, sorry, if, if somebody says to somebody, I want a chain of bars or what have you, or mm. it's a, quite normal for people to go, yeah, I can, I can see that happening. So it's quite the norm to accept that. What was the problem at the time that people uh, doubted think, you? So that was sort of late. Just finishing school, so year 12, just finishing school, that sort of year. So that was, what, the early 90s. There wasn't a lot of hospitality around then. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a lot of, definitely not a lot of chains, not, definitely not a lot of 
business and businessmen or businesswomen that owned multiple shops. Um, you had individual families that ran shops and lived and breathed. You kind of owned them, passed yeah, it down to yeah, generations. Yeah, generation. Yeah. But it was very much, like in Canberra especially, unheard of anyone owning multiples. Mm. And that, I think that came to fruition many years later when, you know, consortiums started getting together and, and things started popping up. Yeah. Almost sounds like it was probably the right timing as Canberra was maturing, if I can use that word, in terms of yeah. its taste and its ability to know that actually there, that there is very much a food and drink kind of yeah. interest here. I mean, now it's, it's a given. We do exceptionally well as Canberrans in terms of restaurants and offerings. And we actually are becoming very well known for being a foodie capital. Yeah. But, you know, go backwards 10 years and that wasn't the same. Go back 20 years ago, most certainly there. wasn't yeah, the same. Yeah, there wasn't much around. Um, but did you, so did you already have a vision that that could happen? Because I guess the other aspect of all business is kind of venturing into the unknown. Did you kind of think this place will get to where we are now? Or were you just hopeful that that was going to be the case and that we're going to get out of a, a small place mentality? Um, I think just... I mean, I, Edgar's, I had this sort of vision long term, and that was my vision for this place. Hospitality and other venues that came with partnerships that I was involved with, no longer in those partnerships, but yeah. partnerships I was involved with, and some guys that were quite inspirational at times. Um, learned a lot of positive, learned a lot of things that I'll never do in business as well. But, but um, you know, they showed me what you can do from a from a visionary type thing, and also from a, a finance back end, and how you run. Businesses, hospitality, from my understanding, was always quite an amateurish sort of business. You just try and get money in the till and pay your bills, and whatever's left over, you'd pay the taxman and whatever's yeah, left over yourself. So yeah. we sort of, you know, the group that I was with had very much a spreadsheet analysis, you know, data, information, yeah. costs, food, wages. You know, it was very much driven by that because one of the partners was heavily into that. Finance. Accounting side, yeah. yeah. So that sort of opened me up to go. Well, you know, if you get this formula right, um, you can take it into the business, and it's not just hospitality. That's that's what we everyone sees, but it's the back end. It's the the duck on the water. The legs are you know pumping out underneath, yeah. but it's calm on top. So that's what the consumer sees and the guest sees, but everything that's in the background is the stuff that makes it work. Yeah. Do you know you've mentioned before you were competitive and obviously people said you couldn't have four bars and you went, let me show you. Do you think that the business end of it, so not the front-facing customer, not the foodie bit, not the drink bit, not even the aesthetic appearance, which actually we should probably talk to later on, but rather the the accounting side of the business, the finance, is that equally as exciting or was it equally as exciting for you because you could get competitive about let me see how much money I can make and whether and whether I can grow this enough to get enough capital for the next business and stuff. I'm just trying, I'm just trying to work out whether you kind of channeled your passion, you know, from from one thing to another, but not just the idea of the romantic notion of having a pub or a restaurant or whatever else, but rather the kind of really hard notion of making it a successful business, which is actually all about numbers. It is. Yeah, and you know what? It took me a while to understand that. I was very much about... The, the execution to the consumer, to the guest, I was very much, that was my role for a lot of years. You know, that's what I was, you know, in partnership with guys and my job was ultimately to make sure we execute from the front end. You know, they looked after the back end, but I, I realised to, to understand the front, you need to understand the back yeah. end. You, and you've got to have a detailed understanding. I know I'm still, I, you know, I've got people around me that understand that better than I do, but I can sort of read read numbers, I can read the market, I can read where there's 
either highs or lows and understand if there's a low there, why is a byproduct of that? What is that? Is it the marketing? Is it the food? Is it the product? Is it the service? So understanding those numbers and like I said, I don't know the detail detail when it comes to, you know, the the tax components and the basses. I mean, it doesn't interest me really. Sure, sure. But and the specialists that offer yeah, that that's advice. Right. Yeah, yeah. But understanding the detail and numbers, they do tell a story. So if you can get that in your head and get around it, it does open up your avenue to really strategize where your business could, can go. So after running Edgar's, so so you did buy it, um, and then obviously that was kind of your first venture. But yeah. obviously people know you for many others. There's public. I mean, that's because I mentioned that before. That's probably not in the right order. There was, of course, Academy. Academy. Was Suburban. Suburban. And public. Public, yep. Shorties. Of course. Um, then there was uh, Little Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Then there was Lola's Pravini. Yep. Tuck Shop, Little Coffee Window. Then there was Mr. Wolf. Yep. Um, and then after all that came Edgar's. Yeah. Um, and then recently, as of this Friday, will be a function cocktail bar upstairs at Public. Yeah, right. So, yeah, of course, which so we've sort <laughs> of evolved. I'll get to see next weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's exciting. Um, like I said, I still work with your team there, which yeah, it's 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 crazy. Actually, it made me think on the way here that that's been such a long time. How long has Public been around now? For? I think I was trying to work it out there. I think it's nearly twelve years. Yeah, that sounds years. about right if I think of the yeah. longevity of my business. And yeah, and yet I'm still doing stuff yeah, with yeah, Patty yeah, and, and yeah. the team who are just lovely. Um, so going from your original vision of someone saying, hey, can you have four venues? And you're like, let me show you. Ultimately, you just rolled out a lot of different names of different establishments. Um, that growth and that movement, tell me about that a little bit. You've done stuff that's very different and kind of definitely put Canberra on the scene, specifically when I think of Academy, but other places as well. How did you go from the small vision, really, of having perhaps four venues to ultimately being in so many different ones and ultimately flowing into this. Is it just a natural thing because you're always, again, competitive and moving? Was it all a big strategy all along? Is it something that just came and went? I, I'm just wondering how how that kind of happens. Uh, I think there's probably multiples with that. There was a, Obviously, we were in a partnership at the time and, and mm. we had guys that had um, you know buildings around and they had a good opportunity to do things in them. So that was one element I... I do get bored quickly, you know. I do I get think in the business. Must, yeah. I, I get bored and watch the next thing. And my wife's forever telling me to slow down and stop it. And you just enjoy I, what you've got. Yeah, just enjoy <laughs> what you've got. But I tend to just always be, you know. There's always what else is there? There's some, another opportunity. There's something there. What can we do? How can we just change it up a little bit? Um, so they, all those businesses came from a multiple. I want to do stuff. Business partners had opportunity. We saw a gap in the market. Um, so that all those combined, I mean, they were hungry at the time to do multiples and we thought we could build a group. Um, ultimately, that a little bit imploded over time because of the personalities and how it didn't really um, have a good foundation between us. So that was the reason why I sort of exited a lot of those businesses and, yep. and I've put a lot of my focus here at Ainsley and I've got ultimately four businesses in one here. Yeah. Well, actually, it goes back to what you said along. Let me show you four places. Well, there. And there yeah, you go. Yeah, you yeah. just put them all into the one yeah. kind of almost like a precinct thing, if I can call it that. Um, but no, it's, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, the reason that I asked that question is 
I wonder where that kind of drive comes from because I mean, what would give you ability here in, in the venues that we're talking about right now is that you've got ultimate control. So whether it's the way it feels and the way the customer experiences it and the, the numbers and everything else, it's probably much easier to control than eight or nine different venues that are shared within partnerships and what have you, right? To a degree, yeah. Um, I think I think what we've got now is a is a hub. So I've can, I've, I've got a, a, an office which is marketing. Uh, operations, accounting. So I've got these team around me that are very good at their job um, and we use that as a base. And then predominantly here at Edgar's, I just use that base. Whereas before I had multiple different people doing the same job for different businesses. Right. And I think that was part of the reason why it was convoluted and confusing and, and changed a bit over time. I think in hindsight, you sit back and you can you can do it. Ultimately, the foundation has got to be right. Yep. Um, and and I think I've got the foundation right now. Um, do I want to do nine business again? Probably not. Mm. Do I want to do a couple more? Probably yes. <laughs> um, if I can find that balance. And I just have to tell you that you're not going to be able to do it, and you will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do. I do like a challenge. And yeah. um, I mean, I was only last week. I was out looking at a, a venue where someone had an opportunity for us and um, you know I'll, I'll punch the numbers out and mm. sit down with my team and see if it works and then we'll have a look at it yeah so it kind of sounds I mean I think this is really nice advice because I'm sure that there are people out there who are even thinking of business partnerships let's not think of something as, as complicated as multiple partners owning multiple venues but most certainly people have spoken to me in the past about getting into partnerships and they always ask for advice like how those that have partnered before found that process because you know the rules are you shouldn't do it with family you shouldn't do it with friends uh, because things can get really in the way but then if you don't do it with people that you don't know very well then how do you make sure that your strategy and alignment and and reasons for owning something is going to be the same now as it's going to be in four five ten years time and I, what I keep on hearing back is that you, A, you have to be a good judge of character. You have to make sure that all your numbers and everything else is correct. Most certainly have to be partnering with people who offer a different skill set to yours so that you're complementing each other. But then I always hear in the end, there's a bit of magic that's to happen. And if it doesn't, it just doesn't. You know, yeah. you can't iron out completely. Do you have any other advice for those who are perhaps seeking, you know, partners out there in terms of making the process a bit more foolproof? I think... My advice to anyone is, one, get a great support around you because ultimately you're looking after yourself. You might be in a partnership, but ultimately you've got to look after yourself and your family. So a good accountant, that's you need to have contracts that are watertight. And that, and that's with partnerships, partnership agreements, how the dividends work, uh, ultimately everything. And th- I hate to say it, but you've almost got to set up your divorce first so it's in black and white so you all agree that, hey, if things go pear-shaped, we actually so as Kanye West would say, we want prenup. We yeah. want prenup. We <laughs> okay. want it, and we want it now. And put that in place, and then no one's got anything. If someone wants to get out, there's a you know a sale clause, or there's a buyout clause, or there's a valuation that's pre-established every twelve months, and then that's the price. It's agreed, and you know independent person might put that in place, and the divorce is set, and every year you might renew it. Business does get in the way, and you, and you get frantic, you get busy. Sometimes you forget that, but mm. that my only advice is set that up early agree to it when things are rosy and great and always ensure that you're revisiting it every 12 months yeah i think that's really good advice and, and actually not something that um anybody else in this podcast has given they've, they've provided some really great advice about the skill sets or the partnership thing you just mentioned in terms of you know how that looks incomplete but yep. um 
Yeah, I think the idea of perhaps when you're mapping out strategies for business growth and here's, you know, plan A and plan B, have ones that are plan C and D, for example, if someone exits out, you know, I think it's it's only logical. And because it's business after all, and even though there's emotion tied in with it and self-respect and all those kind of things, at the end of the day, I think you just need to kind of yeah. make sure that's there. I think that's that's really wise. Um can I go back to Academy for a second? Yeah. I, the reason I go back to it is there was a really great documentary that was done just recently Fantastic. by the Master Plans yeah, guys it was really good, yeah. uh, about that. And watching that back, and I'm not just saying that because I mean it, but I have to be quite honest that I realize how much of an impact that institution has had during its existence on the on the scene, also on Canberra. Did you have a feeling of how profound that venue was going to be before you opened it? Well, it's interesting. I I didn't open the venue, so I I was here at Edgar's, and I it opened, and a friend of mine who used to work for me, and we worked together many years yep. ago, they needed security, and so oh, I, right. I, I was at a point where I wasn't doing much, so I'd do the odd security shift, and then he then came to me nine months later and sort of said, the club had a crack of three months. It was unbelievable. Six months it started leveling out. The last three months has plummeted. They're looking at. Changes. I think the venue manager there, whether he's moving or they're moving him out, I'm not sure, but are you interested? So I sort of entertained. I thought, you know what, I'm not doing it. I was at a time in my life where I needed another challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I had Edgar's. I said, okay, let's put a manager in here. I can run this from afar, not realising that I'd be working 24-7 for a, a long part of the time. <laughs> um, and I went and met with the... The then owners, and there was six or seven of them at that time. Right. There was a lot of people involved. Uh, met with them, came to an agreement and thought I would, I'd be the GM with the pr- provision that I would buy in there over a three, six, 12-month period. And that's how that came about. Um, my background's nightclubs. I did nightclubs from when I was 16 yeah. um, at school, sort of year 11, working in nightclubs and picking up glasses and working security and doing all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, right through in my 20s and, and worked in what was then called the, the private bin, yeah. big nightclub in Canberra, one of the, well, the biggest one in, yeah. around That's where that I met time. Chris Fraser, by the way. Yeah, and Chris <laughs> and I were sort of the young kids there. And um, Chris was more the, the music entertainment and I was more the operational side. But we crossed over a lot and that's where we first met and, and um, so I sort of jumped into Academy and, you know, for me, when walking in there, it was, it was quite a sight. It was a big nightclub. It was impressive. They'd spent millions of dollars, millions of dollars on, on this venue. And, and for me, it was a um, – one, it was a, a time that I I wanted to dive into something and a bit of a challenge. Yeah. Okay. So it's all right. So you, you felt okay and comfortable in that space. Yeah. I, but I mean – you don't mind me saying so. My understanding of it is that when it first opened, it kind of aimed at a, an elite kind of approach. You know, yeah. you dress really well. Yeah. Very much the kind of thing you would see in, in some Sydney and Melbourne clubs. The problem with that approach is that the general public of nightclub goers don't want to be scrutinized to that degree. Mm. And so what it essentially meant is that people were getting turned away because they weren't wearing the right shoes. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it kind of created that kind of division and, and people didn't go for the second, third, fourth go. And that's why we had that moment. And of course, when you guys came in, um, you kind of changed that and said it needs to be far more accessible to people and stand for something. And, and this is how we're going to do it. Where I'm getting to is that, you, you know, you went into saying, let's, let's make this a good nightclub, but ended up being by far more than that. Like I said, it ended up being an institution ultimately, as we saw from the documentary, yeah, which is just great. And so did you have a moment in Academy's history where you kind of turned around and went, 
Oh, yeah. I, not only have we managed to turn it around to now be again full of 3,000 people that go through in that one night, but now it's, it's, this is going to have an impact culturally on Canberra. Did you actually have that moment of realisation when you were working? Uh, I think at times there when you saw, for me it was an operation. I, I had to get the business operating. I had staff there. I had a huge business that I had to operate. We, they had to start making some money. So one, my reputation, I thought I'd need to make this work. Working with Chris was great. He, he gave me the opportunity just to f- focus on operation. So he would do the music, entertainment. We'd bounce ideas. We'd have a look at budgets and numbers and things like that. But ultimately, he did that. And I'd, the goal was you get people to the door, I'll get them in, and I'll make, I'll make the bars work. Yeah. I'll make that happen. So that first three months was the changes. And then we started seeing some serious numbers coming through. And we thought, well, this is, this is working here. What we're doing is working. Mm. And then gradually we just kept growing. And it was a rapid pace. We just went, we just took off. Then when we were starting to get the, the national DJs and the brands and the names and some internationals coming, I started thinking, we are a small town, Canberra, mm. ultimately, to the big market. But these guys are coming here. We're obviously providing something that they want to be involved. Yeah, they get paid a lot of money, but... But they kept coming back two, three, four times. They kept coming back and returning, and they kept saying how good the venue was and how it felt. And and I thought, this is a time that we're creating a change in the market, and people were continually coming back. We had a nightclub with regulars for years. There's not too many places that have that in nightclubs. Um, and, yeah, there wasn't a lot of avenue for, for people to go to different spaces, different areas, but... This was a big venue and we just sort of created something and you could see from then on in it, it started growing pretty, pretty well. Yeah. And, and I guess where I'm going with this is there is, you know, a place where you were the GM of and ultimately owned in, in part, um, that essentially had an impact on development of Canberra. Now, like you said before, you were born and raised here, right? Mm. So your heart is in this place. Yeah. Because you could have quite easily, I'm sure, packed up all your stuff and opened somewhere else. Then if I think of other locations, let's just go back to public for a moment. Interesting point that the redevelopment of public came out of a specific time and that venue is very much about celebrating a heritage of Canberra. And anybody that's been there would know there's this really great kind of print on the back wall, for example. Actually, you might have ripped it off now. No, I don't it's know. Still there, <laughs> it's still there. Still there okay. Yeah. Um, but yes, it's a great, great print of what that exact location looked like back in the day when mm. that building was first formed and... I guess where I'm getting to is it's interesting that you've only just refurbished, but very slightly, after so many years of that being opened, because it stood the test of time and it talked to a classic aspect of Canberra. Yep. And it becomes, therefore, part of a cultural scene, so much so that I won't mention under what um, topics, but if you look at some news, for example, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. Some interesting they articles. actually talk about public, right? Now, not the right association for it, but that's not the point. The point is it's become part of an institution of, of what Canberra is. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Now, Edgar, same thing. You said this was a pub for, but it's been here for a very long time. You've made it into something even grander. You've built stuff around it. And I'm sure that if I keep on going with the different venues, there is a point to the fact that you're kind of utilizing something that's very much part of what is the fabric of Canberra and, and instilling it into a venue. Is that a thought out process or is that just a fluke? Uh, <laughs> no, it's a thought out. I mean, Ainsley, it's about local engagement, community, meeting place. Yep. You know, one of the things I say is downstairs like people's second lounge room. 
they've got to come here three, four times a week. Whether it's just to have coffee or whether it's to meet or it's to have a beer or whatever it might be, it's a, a bit of a local engagement area where people can come down. Whether you're in your, your Ugg boots or you're in your suit, it doesn't really matter. You're all welcome. Public was the same, but it was more for that. Initially, it was more about that business. There was You've got a business environment, parliamentary triangle, you've got Barton, you've got hotels. So that we knew that there was people coming in and out um, political sides coming in weekly and we knew that that would be they needed something not a high-end venue but something that was polished yeah so we invested a lot of money in the public and we rebuilt it and we we gave it that that old new sort of look and feel and you know we we spent a lot of time designing that with the designers so I think there's a definitely a a train of thought and a strategy towards that um, it's just about how you continue that and stick by it and if that's and if that's a rule, you got to. We don't want to lose that. So I think with Edgar's and public, we've held on to that pretty substantially. Mm. You know, even Shorty's. I mean, that's quite an iconic space, considering mm. that building itself was a cinema. Yeah. Which obviously where Academy was, but you know, even I think of Suburban in um, uh, Dixon. in Dixon. Yeah. Same thing. You know that that corner space. There is something about you picking spots which have most certainly an architectural significance, and then building up on that. You know, rather than a brand new building somewhere. Yeah. This just doesn't seem to be your thing. No, I, I find. And it's interesting, I find a lot of the big buildings now that are being constructed that they seem cold and stale and I like architecture. I love old buildings. You know, I love the fact that the building tells a story and, and you know, how you light that building up shows something different. So you're not just walking into a four wall. Your, your experience is when you come around the corner in the car and you see this building and you see this lighting and you see this warmth and you think, that's where I want to be. Mm. So for me, the building is part of it. We don't always get it right, but I try and bring the outside in and the inside out. So I try and I'm trying to activate sensors with people when they're 50, 100 metres away. I want them to sight. Then it's sound. Then it's the smell. Then it's touch. It's taste. So I'm trying to activate sensors all the way from across the road about I want to go into that venue. Yeah. So that's part of some of the sights and what we do internally and externally to, to try and bring that out. Yeah, because I did notice, I mean, n- apart from Academy, which, A, was not designed or built under your supervision, like you, you've mentioned before, you walked into a venue that already existed. Yeah. And plus, that's a nightclub, so let's just park that for a moment. Yeah. But if I think of all the other venues you've been involved in, including, you know, Wakefield, where we're sitting in at the moment, there is most certainly a industrial, not, not a rough, but most certainly something that eats into history. You, you, you definitely like those kind of throwbacks, yeah. cosy and warm. It's There's nothing corporate about any of this. So no. None of the venues that I can think of that you've been involved with, that specifically from an aesthetic point of view, have that. So that lean into almost a tradition. And actually, if you don't mind me saying, I'm, I did a home story on you. God, this is going back quite a few yeah, years ago. Again, yeah, so I'm presuming yeah. you're still in the same place. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what was really interesting and lovely, which a lot of people commented on, is that when you walk into your home, you had this kind of, what I would term a formal front of it, which was, you know, the, the colours were rich. You had kind of... Uh, Furniture would have a bit of heaviness to it. Yeah. And then you walk through the house into the kind of more <laughs> business end, which I would call the family yeah, end. Yeah, the engine room. Yeah. yeah, and then, you know, that was a little bit whiter and, and, and kind of more opened up and, and all the rest of it for, yeah. for the everyday use. And you said you liked the fact that you could walk from one side to the other and have that slightly different night and day kind of experience. Yeah, I like contrast. I yeah. like old and new. I like the combination of, 
you know, clean and sleek, but I then I like the the, the eclectic mess. Yeah. It's it's controlled chaos if you want to call it that as well. I, I do like the the combination of mixing things, and I don't. You know, I've learnt that working with designers over the years, and you know sometimes you know I take guidance from them, and and we bounce ideas off each other. But then I eventually just whether it's a print on the wall or it's a texture, but that goes back to your your senses, your taste, your smell, your sight. I like people to sit into the room, and this is what I like ultimately. Yeah, you, you go to bars or restaurants or. Uh, foyers in hotels or a hotel room and you you sit there and you just tend to look around and you might see a lamp in the corner that highlights a light you might see a light on a building that highlights a statue and i love that you know that for me that's amazing you know and walking through sydney i'm always getting ideas of you know all oh, that lamps lining over that park bench that's great you could do that mm-hmm. there and i try and incorporate things like that and on art gallery that highlights the pictures on the wall for me it's this hidden light but this picture just is elevated on the wall, and if I can do elements like that in a venue, I try and pinch those ideas. No idea is my original idea. It's pinched ideas that I just make my own, yeah. ultimately. The lighting thing that you're talking about, a lot of people refer that to that as being the drama. You know, it yeah. creates a bit of drama. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And that's what it is. You, it want, is. you want some kind of experience within it. Yeah. And also, I think people feel, especially when it comes to hospitality venues, people feel a little bit more at ease when the lighting's a bit lighter because, A, it makes us all look prettier, you know. Yeah, <laughs> Two, yeah. it's kind of cosy. You know, whether it's it's summer or winter, it's just kind of nicer than being in very stark kind of open places. Yeah, yeah. it just depends. Some, I mean, some places you go in there and they're, they're clean and they're – there's not much furniture, and, and you know it suits that area that I might yeah. be doing. You know that it suits that. For me, I like, I, I like the environment. I, I, I like the fact that I sort of walk into a room and I go, "Have people taken their jacket, jackets off? And are they comfortable? Mm-hmm. Have they taken it? If their coats are on, I'm thinking, why is their coat on? Is, it, is the temperature <laughs> not right? Is the lighting not right? Do they not feel comfortable? So Do they not know where the cloakroom well, is? Well, yeah, there's elements like that, and I, they're my triggers that I look for. You know that I that I go okay. Well, maybe I need to do something to that room. Is it not inviting? And I'm always evolving. I'm forever changing lights or lamps <laughs> or furniture, and you know, and people. And I'm I walk into a venue and I'm just changing furniture, and the staff probably get the, the shits with me a little bit. But but <laughs> here I just, it goes again. Yeah, exactly. But I think it's um it's probably a bit of a, a yeah I don't know something that I just get hung up on that I've, I'm always trying to improve something. Yeah, which is fun. But I guess it goes back to this, you know, you're talking about your competitive nature. I mean, apart from being at competition with other people, people who are competitive are actually competitive with themselves. This is the interesting thing, which is why often, you know, it happens when professional athletes, when they stop being professional athletes and they go back to what we would normally call, call normal life, a lot of them actually have a very hard time doing yeah, that because yeah. all of a sudden their self-worth in terms of how they compete with themselves and try to better mm-hmm. themselves is, is gone. But anyway, not to not to go on off topic here, but I, I think the reason you're probably, you know, mushing furniture around, and actually, I mean, Emily uh, would laugh on this as well because I do this at home very often. Yeah, I'll yeah. just swap things around yeah, in the room. Yeah. She goes, well, there's Ashley again, right? Yeah, yeah, but I just yeah. always think the smallest of changes can have a really profound difference. That's my weird thing. But anyway, I guess the reason that you're doing this is because you're always challenging yourself, could this be a little bit better? Yeah. You know? And if it's not, you can always put it back. That's right. You know? And I don't get everything right. I mean, I'm, I'm always learning. I'm, you know, I'm learning things every day. You know, I, you know, if, if you're not learning something new, then what are you doing? You should be testing yourself. So I'm always learning something, but I'm always trying to absorb things that other people are doing and, and say, can I use that element and can I improve 
myself or the people around me. Mm. We, we, I mean, one thing that I do, especially here at Ainsley, is that I have a, a little saying and the staff and with their reduction is, is better off. You know, are we, am I providing that staff? Are they better off when they leave? Everyone's going to leave. The consumer, are they better off after they come here? You know, are our suppliers better off because we have a great engagement with them? You know, is uh, am, am I able to educate someone so that they're better off? So there's all those elements that we try and do, and that comes with being competitive, I think. I think that's the, the basis of it. It's a good point. We, I think before we started recording this podcast, I said that one of the reasons I was keen to talk to you is because many people are interested in your story and many people know you, and exactly at that moment, Zach walked in with some coffees, right? But I'm going to go back to it now that we're kind of recording this. And all through the different venues and all different ventures, you've kind of obviously had to hire and work with a lot of stuff. You yeah. talked about Chris. Um, it would seem to me that you must have kind of got quite the knack for hiring the right kind of people, surrounding yourself with the right kind of people. And I don't mean partners, people that work for you, you know, yeah. whether they're the five people, DJs, yeah. whatever. Tell me a little bit about that because those who have worked with you speak of you very highly, which is really lovely, right? Great. In yeah, reverse. Yeah, it's amazing. Because I'm sure you can be a hard ass, right? Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> exactly. yeah, yeah. And piss people off by moving things around. But what qualities do you look in people for when you're hiring them or when you want them to work with you? Like, because you, you must have an eye for good talent. That's what I'm trying to get at here. And you've also retained a lot of people that have worked with you across different businesses as well, which is quite unusual. What do you look for when you meet people? Um, do I like them? It's the main one. I think I can. We can teach skill. You can't teach um, being nice and being honest and culture. Culture is a big thing, you know. If the culture's right and everyone in that environment knows the culture, someone if an outsider comes in and they don't fit that culture, they'll soon get found out. Mm. So I, I'm a big believer is that. I can, we can teach skill and we can elevate people. It's all about the team environment. If there's individuals there all about themselves, then you don't really belong because it's a team environment. Everyone's there, has to support each other. We've got, you know, you know, and I, I did a lot of coaching with football and I, and football's the same. You've got guys that do roles, guys that show ponies that love scoring tries, whatever it might be. And you've got guys that just fit in, but the team environment here, you've got, Guys in the kitchen that work in an engine room, generally they're locked away in a kitchen and they don't get to see yep. the outside world, you know, but they are an engine room of this business and you need to have people that are strong-minded, they understand, they can all work together so that, that they can communicate. You need that at the front as well. You need guys that are flamboyant. You need guys that uh, just head down, just work. So you need that mix of people. But ultimately, I will come in and I'll, and I don't do a lot of the hiring anymore, and I haven't for a long time, but how are you going? What's your name? Tell I'll, I'll tell them, always tell them to come and shake my hand and introduce themselves. And I'm pretty bad with names, and I forget names <laughs> a lot, but I'll ask them, you know, what are, are you at uni? What, are you from the area? What, you know, what do you have brothers and sisters? What do they do? I try and get a little bit of information and try and understand what makes them tick. Mm. Are they here just for the money? Are they here to socialise? So there's a combination of things that, and I probably don't do it in detail and I just do it naturally. Um, but I can generally pick out the good and the bad ones. Um, so it kind of sounds like you're looking for an alignment of the values of why they want to work. 
So perhaps the drivers, I should probably say. Drivers, right? absolutely. Which, which money is most certainly one of the major ones, and that's fine. But it, the attachment is of other things, like why hospitality, why this particular venue, you know, that kind of thing. And if you can work that out and see that it's on the same par as the other people you've hired, then you're getting a team fit. But it almost sounds like in your head you've almost mapped out personality or skill types that you need in your business that fit well to different roles and you're almost kind of thinking yeah I could imagine this person being front of house because they have a bit of charisma and they yeah. have a bit of drive the other aspect of it is I can hear and tell me if I'm right about this you're avoiding people with large egos is, is that right because I guess if you're saying teams and you kind of talked about um, sporting just a moment ago my understanding is Egos are great for drive, but they're also very bad for teamwork, right? Because you ultimately don't have the empathy for other people that you're working with, all that kind of teamwork dynamic. So does that is that one of the triggers where you kind of go, this might not be the right fit when someone's just, I'm this good, I'm this awesome. Yeah, always, yeah sometimes, and I, don't get me wrong, I've hired people that have been, I needed a, someone who was all about them and flamboyant and loud and boisterous and you know, it just created an image. And But ultimately, I think that person is all about them. Yeah. You know, and and what I say to them is, is the person next to you that works alongside you better off? If they're not, then you're mm. not doing the right thing. That goes back to our core values that we sort of put in place, and that you know that's that we do, especially here with our inductions and our core values and what we will and what we won't do. There's all those sort of things that we that we ask of ourselves and each other, and and it goes back to that staff member. You know, do they fit the mold? Will they do X, Y, Z? Well, maybe they will or maybe they won't. Well, we might be a case where we need someone, and in the current market we do. There's sure. Staff shortages. Okay, well, let's put that person in that role, but let's let's cap their um, their surroundings about where we can limit their exposure. Mm. And we sort of work to say, what? how can they benefit the business right now? Yeah. So there's a bit of a – it's a chessboard. you just got to move yeah. people around it ultimately. Yeah, I get that. Um, this might be a bit of a hard question, but let's see how you answer it. So <laughs> on the flip side, um, say, for example, someone like Kayla Gaffer, right, yeah. who who obviously likes you a lot, and now she's, she's now uh, working in Sydney. Yeah. And every time I catch up with her when she comes down to Canberra, uh, we see each other when I'm playing a white rabbit or something, you yeah. know, have a nice chat, and we always talk about the good old days, right? Yeah, and you yeah. always come up in those conversations yeah, somehow. Yeah. But maybe if you want to think of her or other people, why is it that you think they like working for you so much? And the reason that I'm asking this question is not to make it difficult for you because I know it's hard, right? But I'm just thinking of other people that are listening to this podcast who might want to go, what is it that employees look for in someone that's leading them that might make them go, yeah, I really like working for that person because then they might take on those attributes, right? What do you think it is about you that people like? Um, I tend to give people opportunity i think and i tend to see the best in people you know even the guys that you know we had over the years and then they haven't been great i'll give them a second chance because i do see the best in people that there's always an opportunity to get someone making better um and i suppose with a lot of the people over the years and kayla's a great you know i think she's fantastic she she was just a a young girl bartender but got up to managing Hmm. a lot of staff and venues and you know, and I try and bring people up from the basic because that's what I did. Ultimately, it's what I did. I was a I was a, a sixteen year old kid working in a nightclub, and I and within I think it was eight, six, seven, eight years, whatever it was, I was general manager of one of the biggest nightclubs in Canberra, young mid twenties. So I suppose that might be something that I did, and I try and get instill that in. You know, maybe that's what I do, but I do try and make people better. 
Mm. And I, if I can, and the other thing is, I'll, I'll give them, I'll give them enough rope that they'll either grow or they'll struggle. Mm. And if they struggle, I know well you're capped at this level. But if you grow, that's great. It's great for me because then I can bring people up under you. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, if I can grow people around me, it makes me stronger and gives me the ability to potentially do another venue. Yeah, and I think so maybe what I'm hearing is that there's this kind of general aspect. So maybe what people appreciate quite a fair bit is they can feel that your intentions for them at a personal level aren't only attached to one single thing, and that is uh, just working hard enough, thanks. There is something else about yeah, development I, or, or, or freedom at the same yeah, time. I think it's a bit family-ish, if you want to call it. Yeah, that. Oh, I think okay. yeah. You know, we all tend to get on pretty well, and we're all... I mean, you and I have known each other for a hell of a long time, and we can grab a coffee any day of the week and catch up and just chat about anything. It's yeah. not that... that You know, some people have that intimidation with their the owners or bosses where they can't converse with them, and I don't want to be that person. I'm pretty down-to-earth and pretty laid-back and probably sometimes too laid-back. <laughs> uh, but, I, you know, I, I, I treat people how I want to be treated, and I think that's ultimately what... Yeah. And if we can have a conversation, have dinner, and... You can say good day to my kids and, you know, see you on the road. That's great. It feels really natural, yeah. Yeah, it feels natural, well, yeah. Actually, maybe I'll throw one thing at you and see if you agree. I, I think one of the things actually is, and, and this I know out of a whole bunch of literature that I've read, but they talk about transparency. So it means that when someone can read you in a fair bit of detail, it just makes it easier for you to have that kind of relationship with them. So I think with you, it's actually quite easy to work out what it is that you want from someone. So there's not confusion and weirdness. It's just very straightforward. I'll give you an example. <laughs> I remember we were um, in a meeting once uh, at Academy and there's a whole bunch of guys with us. And and the convers- I think you might have been quite busy because he came in, you know, you just really wanted the facts, right? Yeah. And the guys started kind of like dancing around a particular issue. And I remember at the time, like looking at you and I could see out of your body language, you started like fitting around the keys. I'm like, every time you do that, I know that you're done with the conversation. And eventually you just snapped and kind of like, you know, push your keys down on the, on the table and say, guys, all right, this is really what I want to know. And they kind of snapped them into a particular focus. Now, what's interesting about that, it's actually a very transparent thing to do. You made it very clear, not in a rude way at exactly that meeting to go, I'm not up for that kind of thing. You guys can do that when I'm not here. That conversation is not part of it. But most certainly, let's just get to the core of it, right? And what's interesting is that I actually think that's quite a transparent thing to do. It's part of your personality. You know, you've got stuff to do, you know, all the rest of it. And it wasn't rude, but very much clear in what you were expecting. And I think people actually like that. So I'm sure there's situations in meetings and whatever that you have to be tough, you know, and you have to push people to something, but you do it in a transparent and honest way. And people still probably benefit from that and like that. Yeah, I I think that's true, definitely. And I think that there's times, you know, and you you might say in the heat of battle, like when the the place is pumping, there's people everywhere, you need that, I say you do. Sometimes you just need to go, do this, get it done, because I know it works. I try and give people enough, and with the managers and and with the staff, give them enough that they can work it out. But sometimes you can see, because of you've done it yourself, (laughs) and it's a time where you jump in and go, no, this is what I want. And I think if the message is clear, People' expectations are set, um, and definitely in meetings. And I've had meetings, and I try and let them work it out and a little bit of an input. But at times, you just got to go. No, nah, this is X, Y, Z. This is what I want. And like you said, I, I, I probably do do that. Mm. Um, I try and let them work it out, but occasionally it's just this is what I want. 
Yeah, yeah. Because I know yeah. it works. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and once again, it becomes, it's about transparency. It's about, yeah. you know, this is, and, and this is why I think this is going to work as well. And yeah, yeah. Giving that kind of education. Um, let's talk about Cambridge just for a quick moment. Um, you've, like we've kind of alluded to, you've seen a lot of change in this place. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that there's heaps of things still ahead of you. A, because of your competitive nature, T, you're going to get bored with this any yeah, moment. Yeah. And there's only so many times you can change the tables around in this place. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so do you see a lot of change where Canberra's going to go, say, for the next 20 years? And that's one part of the question. The second one is, do you see yourself doing a lot of different things still? Or do you think this is kind of about holding the status quo for the time being? Um. Canberra, firstly, I think it's growing and it's growing at a rapid rate. You can see the construction going on all the time. Um, I think that there's changes. Canberra's got a, what I call little satellite cities. You've got mm. Tuggernaut, you've got Gungahlin, you've got all these little satellites and within those satellites will be environments in hospitality I think will grow over time. You're seeing a lot of young guys um, that have worked in hospitality that tend to th- I'm going to go give something a go. And I think with that comes change, excitement, different styles of food because there's just this mismatch of environments where they've worked and they create a little business and I think that that's exciting. Um, so I think cameras, it has come so far. We're in a, an amazing location really, food, um, produce, farming. You know, we've got that all around us and I think we've, you know, look at our, our wine that's in, in the area and we're very educated. Canberra's got so many people that come from Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide, and they come here and their expectations, and, and we as the people that live here understand that and we're providing that expectation now. So I think that people are a lot more knowledgeable of of the environment and Canberra's become a lot more knowledgeable of who comes in and out and we're catering for that. Um, then the other the question was around you. Oh, so me, yeah. Do you think, do you think that... That evolution of Canberra, you know, about understanding its environment and how it's constantly going to get, keep on evolving, essentially, because of this competitive things that you've just mentioned of other people opening up and that lifting the standard, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. Plus, you know, population growing as well. But do you see yourself kind of going, I'm going to take advantage of that? And just like you did all those years ago when you bought Edgar's in the very first instance, you know, now do you kind of go, well, this is just equally a big movement upwards and so let's do something else or do you think you're kind of like i think i might just hold on to my yeah my that's well, that's interesting that because i've sort of one one side of me tells me that so i'm i'm nearly 50 so I'm, I'm sort of at that only yeah only 50 so i sort of sit back and go do i want to go aggressive again and go a lot more do i am i content with what i've got yeah i am but i, I do get bored so I need to have that excitement. I need that adrenaline rush as well. You know, I, I love the fact that you're opening a venue and the bars and you're seeing people come in and you're watching how they, they work in a room and that excites me and I'm thinking, you know, what can I do? There's, there's people around me currently in, in the business that want to do things uh, and have asked the question, would you do that with us? And I think that could be something that I, that I might do and I'm going to consider it. It's, it might be more of a mentorship type style that helps people and gets them in and builds them up. And then, you know, if I can, if I can help, then great. Um, will I do other things? I probably will. I've just got to pick the right time. <laughs> yeah, just got to read the market. And, um, Could you imagine um, running a new nightclub again? 
yeah, or, is there, uh, or are those days behind you? Yeah, I think they're behind me. <laughs> I think that they definitely don't need <laughs> an old man cruising around in a nightclub. I think it's a young man's game. It's, <laughs> don't get me wrong, it's exciting. And, you know, I, it is exciting. And that, that's where I, a lot of my years, so, I mean, ultimately I spent 30 years in nightclubs. Mm. It's a long time. Not many people spend that sort of time mm. in, in nightclubs. And I've seen everything from good, bad, ugly, nice, whatever it might be. Yeah. But, yeah, I think my club scene's gone. <laughs> I think I can leave that to others now. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's exciting. Yeah, there's um, I, I got asked to play at one two two, which is what Mr. Wolf became. Uh, and their um, music policy, I hope Frankie doesn't let me saying this, is, is kind of much leaning back into what dance music was hmm, a good ten years ago. So much more soulful, much more funky, that yeah. kind of thing, rather yeah. than kind of big 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 tunes and uh he asked me to play there a couple of times and it was fantastic it was like <laughs> going back in time with with a bit of a new edition because there's a lot of really good music yeah, yeah, yeah. in that vibe yeah absolutely and it was just great and i actually felt really in my element but if if you asked me to do the same thing and say for example in fiction i'm sure i'd be completely out of place so it's just not not where i'm supposed to be so unfortunately or fortunately whichever way you you put it things do move past and it becomes slightly realigned yeah yeah um but i guess that doesn't really happen in the um hospitality as far as pubs and restaurants and things go like you're never too old or too young to to work in that no i mean food and beverage will be i mean good times in economies and bad times food and beverage is always there it's been around for thousands of years it'll be here for another you know (laughs) thousands of years and i think that hospitality is a big part of what we've become. We're such a multicultural um, country and you're seeing, you know, these restaurants open up and these bars that have got a mix of Mediterranean or English or, you know, from south of France mixed with American or whatever it might be. And for me, that's exciting. You're seeing these mismatch of venues and and hospitality people coming in and and building stuff you've got the big groups which i which i do look at you've got the the guys out of melbourne and the big groups out of sydney and they're doing stuff all over the country and they do some amazing things um but there's also just those little guys that fly under the radar a little bit that you can just pop up on the old instagram or facebook and you follow them when they've got little numbers and all of a sudden they've got they're doing great food and they're doing some great things i think we've got a you know, our hospitality scene is, um, and in Canberra, but nationally I think it's evolving in the next five, ten years will evolve even more so. Well, there you go. And that kind of answers the question that you look beyond just Canberra, which is your home, into what's happening yeah. in the national market. And even though you might not own places in, in Sydney and Melbourne, you're still taking inspiration from that and bringing it here. Yeah, I love you know, driving to Sydney, and I, I do that with some of my key guys here. Well, We'll get up, we'll get all jump in the car, we'll drive to Sydney, we'll check out a, a venue for breakfast or, or morning tea or lunch, and then we'll go to a, a beer somewhere, then we'll have dinner at a restaurant and then we drive back later. So we'll just go check out four <laughs> or five venues in the one day and it's about what are they doing, what's new, what food, what's how do their staff working, what's the venue look like and it's just gives it just keeps us on a you know, on our toes a bit. Jeez, that sounds fun. When when I have like days with my executive teams and whatever else, we sit in boardrooms yeah, and, and talk about strategies we, we with, on PowerPoints. So there's no, yeah, there's no beer that. and dinner and lunch and yeah, breakfast. Yeah. What's this? No, we have that, but but you, you need to be exposed all the time. Otherwise, you become stagnant. You become stale and. 
doing the same thing all the time. You just need to see what's out there. Mm. It's all about keeping the excitement yeah, up. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Awesome. Well, look, Frank, uh, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you for the coffee. Um, I thought it was fun. I did get to learn a few things I actually didn't know about you, which is always good to know. <laughs> um, and, yeah, thanks for thanks for being part of this conversation and good luck for the next 20, 30, 40 years and all the things that are going to happen in it. Yeah, thank you. I mean, we'll be crossing paths many, many times, I'm, I'm sure. sure. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Frank Condi on Behind the Bio. I told you you'd get a bit of an insight into the man and the person who created so many iconic venues in Canberra. If this podcast is still going in five years time, I'd love to get him back on because I seriously wonder what he's going to be up to by then. Now, Frank was actually a suggested guest by many of you, so thanks for that suggestion, and I'm really glad I could get him in front of the mic. If you have other thoughts on who I should speak to, then please reach out to me. I absolutely love it when you do. So, Instagram is probably best, at Behind the Bio Podcast, or if you prefer email, then ashley underscore furrowed at outlook.com. I hope to hear from you soon, and I hope you can tune in to the next episode of Behind the Bio. The Bio.